Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I'm your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Dr. Tony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like the show. We are on YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, so you can find us everywhere. Our special guest today is Dr. Heather Linden. She's the Senior Senior Director of Physical Therapy for the UFC Performance Institute. Apparently, she's been there six years. She was one of the original um, original, uh, people to be at the UFCPI. She manages both the Performance Institute Sports Medicine Departments in Vegas in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Shanghai, China. You'll have to tell us about Shanghai. Um, recently, Heather was awarded the Trainer of the Year Award at the 2022 World MMA Awards. Ooh, that's Well-deserved. Wow. Thank you. Thank well you. Before, joining, before joining UFC, Heather worked at the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee Sports Medicine Division. Actually, she's done a lot of things. We can't possibly lift it, list it all, <laughs> but we're going to list a few of them. And she was the director of the Outpatient Orthopedic Clinic in LA. She's worked also at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center for over six years as part of the USOPC's multidisciplinary sports medicine team. Here's some more cool stuff. She was on staff for Team USA for the 2012 London Games, 2014 Sochi Olympic Games, and 2016 Rio Olympic Games. She's all over the place here. Top of the food chain, Joey. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Lyndon received her bachelor's degree from Virginia Tech, the Hokies. Yes. And her doctorate in physical therapy from Old Dominion University. I'm oh, not yeah. sure what their nickname is, but the that's Monarchs. The what? Monarchs. Pretty good wrestling there too. They do, I mean, yes. As yeah. in the monarch butterflies? Um, I think it's just like a symbol, the monarchs. I'm not really sure what that means. It was that <laughs> grad school experience where we don't really dive into that <laughs> right. mascot. Okay. We're so you're studying. <laughs> you stayed in Virginia the whole time for school. I did. Why? Why did you stay in Virginia? Just curious. So initially it was, um, I wanted a big um, college football environment. I was Ah. a cheerleader. So I cheered on the varsity team all through my four years at Virginia Tech. But um, I wanted that big sports environment. Also knowing I wanted to do some type of sports medicine. So that also made me want to be into a big league team. And so my brother went to Virginia Tech, kind of guided me to go there as well. And then, you know, you do that whole, I'm a resident in Virginia and get a little bit of a discount when it comes to going to grad school in state. So decided I would go to the beach, live in Virginia Beach and go to Old Dominion for grad school. Okay. Well, I have been to Virginia Beach many times because I grew up in Northern Virginia, actually Northern Virginia. Yeah. And uh, Maryland. Um, Yeah. Virginia is a nice place. I, you know, I'm still a wimp. I couldn't handle the winters. That's why I'm in Florida. It does get cold. It gets cold there. Yeah. Um, But I did enjoy Virginia Beach. It's one of my favorite beaches, that one. And also if you go a little bit north, uh, Ocean City, Maryland. I don't know if you went. Yes. Yeah. I mean, growing up in New Jersey, I did the whole, like, we went to beaches every summer, whether it was, we went to Ocean City, New Jersey. We did Seaside, all of those. And then getting down into Maryland and then also Virginia Beach, Outer Banks, things like that as well in Florida. Yeah. Well, now Tony and I live in the state which has the best beaches, I'd say, in the world, because I've been to Hawaii several times. And, I concur. Uh, the beaches here are better than Hawaii. Yes, the so. key, particularly the Gulf beaches, yes. Yes. They yeah, are they, beautiful. They yeah. are beautiful. Now, now Heather, you have been at the UFCPI for more than half a decade. Apparently, you love that job. So we want to know why you love that job. And when you give it up, you know, let us know so we can put someone you know, that will be there and, and as friendly to Tony and I as you are. <laughs> I mean, it would be hard to give this job up. This is definitely a pinnacle of a dream job, mm-hmm. mostly because when I started, um, there was nothing that had been done before from a sports medicine department. So they gave me a blank canvas to come in here and really design everything that I thought a sports medicine clinic should be about. And From traveling with the Olympic teams and understanding how actually other interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary models work, I could take the good and the bad, figure out like, hey, this didn't work well, or guess what? This worked really well. How do I incorporate that and really develop what I, all my morals, values, and philosophies and combine that into what is now our sports medicine department? Now, you, okay, you're working obviously with world-class MMA athletes. 
a different breed than let's say the ones you worked with at the U S at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. So when you first start a job, you probably have at least some preconceived opinion about this is what should be done. Now, what, what did you learn working with world-class MMA athletes? That's like, Whoa, okay. They're a little different than let's say working with track and field or, you know, any other sport, cause they are a different group of people. Very much so. I mean, I think the biggest difference that I learned initially right off the bat was, you know, coming from these other sports, they had um, almost feeder programs, right? They had collegiate high school athletics, collegiate right. athletics that kind of sculpted what their journeys look like. You know, right. they they understood how a dietitian, how sports medicine, how strength and conditioning kind of intermingled. And maybe it wasn't at the highest professional level, but it was, you know, departmentally. I mean, I remember in even high school athletics, we had to do SNC a few days. We had to yep. work on diet and things like that. So I think the biggest difference was coming here, this athlete population really didn't have any groundwork laid about how an interdisciplinary or how science could possibly even be a part culturally and from an evidence standpoint on what we see statistic wise, how these athletes win, what their journeys look like. So I think that was the biggest difference coming into this population is realizing someone maybe never even did a rehab from an injury. They might've just brushed it off through some dirt on it and kept going, or they have never really, you know, one-on-one -on -one worked with a sports dietitian or a strength and conditioning. And then to put that interdisciplinary model for these athletes together and see if it would actually stick and they would actually use us was a huge, you know, groundtaking feat that we were excited about. And on top of that, just quickly, Heather, you have not only, and, and I've noted, you know, I had done performance training and it's, you're coming from different disciplines, boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, who probably wrestling was most familiar because yep. at the collegiate level, they had the infrastructure that you said, right? Yeah. But boxing, kickboxing, a bunch of sole proprietors, pure jujitsu experts, the same. But then you have to even look at the, which is amazing how you've done this so well. You're not just integrating athletes with all different types of backgrounds or lack of knowledge, but the international flavor. Where some of this stuff is extremely foreign, right, to what you integrated and maybe never even seen before, more overused with a consist on a consistent basis. I mean, there's such cultural norms and cultural factors right. that play yeah. in with these athletes. I mean, especially having that second facility in China. And then, you know, right now I'm interviewing for the third facility in Mexico. Mexican. So like culturally wise, even medicine, Eastern versus Western medicine, yeah. how to meet in that middle ground, because they might go to a physician in China that says, you know, I had an athlete once go and have a small staph infection and literally they gave them tea, hot tea to drink. And I was like, yeah. not that that I'm not. No, it's know, good. Yeah, yeah. That there is a lot of Chinese medicine that's amazing. But this athlete had a fight in two weeks. I need to make mm -hmm. sure that that infection doesn't wow. play its course and I can right. stop it, halt it and get that athlete to perform at his optimal level. So like you really have to mix that like cultural difference. And like you said, Tony, the athletes are a global population. They are. Yep found all over the world. So it's, it's really, you know, unique experience having those different components and people with different cultures and different journeys. Right. Now you bring up, you mentioned Shanghai and um, China's an interesting, it's, there's something interesting about it because they have a culture of martial arts that, you know, predates the United States. It goes yes. back thousands of years. And I've always wondered how the UFC fits within the Chinese culture because the, there's a Chinese mixed martial artist who's dedicated his life to exposing what he calls fake Chinese martial arts. And obviously he's uh, he's frowned upon by the government, which is never a good thing in China. And so how does that work with the fact that obviously with the UFC being there, it clashes with traditional Chinese martial art arts. So how does that work? So, I mean, I think that actually plays a big role why we're there, because mm -hmm. there was that huge clash and it's trying to bridge the gap. So, you know, UFC is such a huge entity in the sense of they are constantly doing like statistics, analytics of who watches, what people are following the journeys, how do we get more viewers? And seriously, China was such an untapped market for us. And like you said, it's, it's quite shocking when you would think about it because culturally they have such a, they've had mixed martial arts for years, right. 
But it's one of those things where I think we found like, how do we bridge the old school, you know, mixed martial arts with the new age? And how do you meet in the middle? So by developing our facility there, it's not only a performance center, but it's also an academy style right. where it can help young athletes that are interested in mixed martial arts bridge that gap into that new age. Because what we saw happening is the old school mixed martial arts didn't have a professional sports journey. Mm-hmm. And the athletes would try to come into the our, you know, new age mixed martial arts and maybe not quite get as high ranked or that that journey wasn't as long and as successful. So by creating an academy and bridging that gap, we're bringing in new young athletes that really want to compete at the highest level of mixed martial arts. And we're giving them a facility that has all the components to, you know, to hopefully help them and assist that interest and spark a little bit more of that, you know, bridged gap. Wait, so no, this is fascinating. Sorry, Tony, because if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, when Bruce Lee tried, when he wanted to teach at the time, he called it Kung Fu, he changed it to Jeet Kune Do. But when he wanted to teach non-Chinese students the art, he got a lot of backlash from Chinese citizens or Chinese citizens living in the U.S. Yes. And, and I'm wondering if there's that kind of backlash, because there's a lot of traditionalists still in China who whereby, you know, Wing Chun Kung Fu or some sort of other style of Kung Fu. When, in fact, if they tried to implement those techniques and Tony, you can comment on this. It doesn't seem to work in I'll use the quotes real world or at least in the cage. Versus you got to learn to box, do Muay Thai, you got to wrestle. In fact, as we all know, it seems like wrestling or grappling seems to be the basis. Yes. And and that's not a, that's not a, correct me if I'm wrong, Tony or, or Heather. Grappling isn't typically what you associate with the Chinese or, well, J- Japan's different because they have jujitsu. And right. judo, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but in China, you don't typically think of grappling arts. No, you don't. But I think one thing we know this about China that exceeds everything, they love sports and they love being at the top of sports. Mm-hmm. Like I know from traveling with the Olympics, like, you know, they hold their athletes at a level that I think us in the U.S. can't even understand. I mean, working with Chinese athletes before, you know, if they are successful in sport, their life is completely taken care of and supported Mm -hmm. and they are put on a pedestal for their entire lifespan. Where in the U S we put our athletes on a pedestal for that short period of longevity in sport. And then a lot of times we, we forget about them in, in a culture like China, they put them on that pedestal and they remember their entire life. They are held there until, you know, they're passing. So it's like, I think that we know, and I think that's what really incentivizes us to be a part of trying to bring that up because they love sports. So if we have now a new age sport, that is probably the fastest growing sport that we've seen in a long time. Um, I think there definitely has a lot of interest in that culture to be a part of it and not be behind. Yeah, that's that's these are brilliant points and things I've never given thought to. And I've, I've only worked with a handful of young Chinese fighters, um, people from China. And I have to tell you, um, some of the, I, I mean, highly appreciative of very much wanting to absorb, right? I, I, yes. Like, actually very encouraging. Yes. Um, very appreciative and open to learning interpretation. And and really, I wish I could get everybody to have been as consistent with anything we suggested as they were. They were a- really absolutely. great athletes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you said... Uh, there's one uh, performance institute that will open in Mexico. Yes. So we should be opening in November, October, November. Um, and that again will be a UFC performance institute with an academy inside of it. So mm-hmm. we will have 20 to 25 athletes there as well, developing young athletes and talent mm-hmm. to really bridge that gap. Now, I find that fascinating, mainly because if you remove a lot of the fighters from the United States, the rest, a lot of them come from Brazil. And I would have thought Brazil would be a logical choice. But this is more of a business question. I don't know if it's well, one so, that you would address, but why not Brazil versus that's Mexico? A, that's a great question. I can tell you this. My second year here, I was down in Brazil for covering an event. And they asked me to go check out three facilities to build a performance institute out of. One was some of the old Olympic uh, for the Rio Olympics, some of the buildings that we made. Unfortunately, a lot of them have started to 
you know, fade and mm -hmm. degrade and stuff. So they had me go and look at three various facilities where we were thinking of building a facility in Brazil. Now, something that a lot of people don't know is the government in Brazil is very volatile. Um, they can override someone and get them out. And if a new person comes in, they literally could take the entire property that we built away from us. And there's wow. no grounds on us keeping it. So okay. the problem when we started looking into the government and looking into building a facility there, they were so pro having us there. But then they were like, well, if we overthrow this guy tomorrow, the new guy can take everything and it's his yeah. property and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So, you know, how are you going to invest millions in a facility right. and in a blink of a second, somehow that facility could be gone and you have no grounds to be right. on. That would yeah. be, yeah, that would be like the next election cycle, Tony. If your guy yeah. loses, I'm taking your house. <laughs> exactly, right? Could you imagine? <laughs> we're, we're getting close to that. <laughs> but here's the good news. The UFCPI will stay intact and we're all happy about that. So question, Heather, just quick question. What is the, so what might a, a young uh, candidate look like? So what at what age are they starting at the academy? Um, how, how are they recruited from previous sports? Or, or what are some of the criteria that may get these young athletes to enter uh, the academy? So what we do is they have to be 18 years of age. Okay. Um, so they're 18 and older. They are not professional. They're amateur fighters or mixed martial artists of some type. Um, they actually go through a combine similar to like an NFL combine where I've each department right. has set standards of kind of, we start from sports medicine, look at injury, what previous injuries they've had, what medical background, you know, obviously CTs of the brain, hearts, EKGs, things like that, just to make sure they first fit the initial criteria. Then we go into strength, power, all of our strength and conditioning, right. tier one diagnostics into our nutrition diagnostics to see if they're in appropriate weight classes. So pretty much we go head to toe, a week long combine, we rank them, they get scores. It's actually quite, um, quite a whole process that yeah. we've developed. And then from there, the top 20 to 25, depending. We also have Forrest and some of the coaches that work with us looking at, usually they're amateur fighters that are trying to make it up into the system. And this gives them a good way to have a little bit of a lower level. You know, in the in US, we have other promotions that athletes sometimes come up through that yeah. feed into UFC. They don't really have that in other countries. Right. So this creates that a little bit more. Um, so yeah, it's it's a pretty thorough process that we've developed, but you know, obviously there's a lot to still learn from it, right? Like we've had some good successes, you know, obviously with COVID, the Shanghai facility yeah, right. almost shut. It's only been open for four years and almost two, it was like 18 months that was closed wow. because of all the rules and regulations mm -hmm. in China during COVID. So we're wow. just getting the ground running again on it. Yeah, and just quickly, I'll, and I'll let Joey roll on his question, but I, I would like everyone to know this has been established like the work you guys have done, really, because I've known Duncan and look, we collaborate with you, as you know, and you all the time, all yep. our, our university. Um, all of this has been established in an incredibly short period of time. And particularly what you're saying here, too, regards to COVID, but the the combine, the, the testing uh, metrics and everything you've designed. It's really, really impressive, everyone. Even the UFCPI here. I mean, six years old is not old. No. And, and what what has been established is really it's impressive. It's wonderful work. And it continues to advance every time I, I go out there. So good job to all of you. Thank you so much. Challenging. That. I'm interested in this combine. So when I hear the combine, I think of the NFL combine, 40 yard dash, vertical jump, yep. broad jump. Do they do tests like that? And, I'm, and if they do, what are they? Because I'm curious as to what yes. an MMA combine would involve. So when it comes to like, obviously we start with the medical, we do also like the DEXA, the metabolic efficiencies, all those tests that we would do with a UFC athlete. But then when it comes to strength and conditioning, they'll do strength profiles. Um, they'll do power profiles. They will do VO2 maxes. They will do any of the um, profiling tests that we have established um, data and objective measures to see where like how much power a certain weight class has, how much strength a certain weight class, how 
Um, what is their aerobic capacity, you know, anaerobic, all of that kind of stuff. But then we also look into, um, there's a grappling area, there's a jujitsu area, there is a like, so our coaches in um, Shanghai have developed like pretty much criteria of different types of mixed martial arts of then performing, like, you're going to do takedowns, you're going to do striking, you're going to do this. And they're graded by coaches on what their performances look like and stuff. And then that's all tallied, which it's, it's very similar to an NFL combine, but we have now we keep modifying it every year to make it more and more um, based on the mixed martial artists and the data that we have found with our journals and everything else that we're pulling statistics from to really try to mimic what that'll look like. You know what would be interesting, Tony, if we got that combine data, um, and how many how many subjects would you have combine data on roughly? So normally we'll have anywhere I would say twenty five to forty athletes competing for twenty to twenty five slots. Okay. Now we do it every six months, so like the athlete will get a six month contract. They'll be put up in housing. They'll be fed. They'll be, they can train all of their expenses. And then they're guaranteed. I want to say they're guaranteed like two or three fights, uh, or, you know, offered during the six month time. And then they have to retest in six months and see if they still keep making those top right. spots. So, I mean, we've done it now. Our first year we had two combines. Then we took like probably 18 months off. Then we had another two. I would say we probably have about two, five combined data, like objective measures of what it looks like. And to see the evolution from day one, where we started, where it was like very minimal testing to now how thorough our coaches and our, all of our interdisciplinary team has made it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You've done a great job quickly on this. Yep. Yeah. Tony, it'd be interesting to get that combine data and then correlate it with performance, actual yes. performance yeah. in a fight. Yep. Yeah. Um, because as as you and I know, predicting perform human performance is is so exceedingly hard. difficult. Is. I mean, I always go back to if you go to the NFL combine and Tom Brady, who would have right. thought Tom Brady would have turned out? I mean, he's slow, his arm's not that strong. I mean, okay, so why would he be good? Well, because there's something up here that you can't measure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, and if you look at our athletes, like that's the coolest thing about our athlete population, right? Like genuinely when we've sat and done diagnostic testing on a lot majority of our athletes, I would say probably 50, 50, 50 look like a fine tuned machine yeah. and 50 are like, can't even do a squat, a lunge, don't have good running mechanics yet. They can fight. They, they can, can fight. fight. Right. Yeah. So like it, that there's that special, that special piece that, you know, is unmeasurable and that, these athletes can have. So it's so cool to see the different like scales of athleticism on various that make a mixed martial artist. Yeah. And that that's, that's fantastic. And what it does, I mean, I think what you're doing is wonderful, but there are the unpredictables, as you noted in the U S though, I think the combine is even less indicative now because combine training is a separate business, right? Yes. People train just for a combine. Right. And they excel at that combine and that that may have little carryover to the skills. But I think in due time, um, we'll be able to see that. Yeah. You know, with all the data you're putting together, is there a correlation between combine performance and fighting? And we track that. So we track what their like yeah. fight is, like how many wins, how many losses, how many to see. And like we set goals. Like every year we have to set goals, like we want 80% to make it to here or three out of the combine get contracts into the UFC. Like those are performance goals that our staff has to live up to wow. in order to keep those going. That's great. Yeah. Cause I wonder how many athletes, like you said, they based on combine data, you're like, wow, they're rather average or not very good, but there's something else about them. And I wonder how many of those guys or girls might be overlooked just because yep. they mm -hmm. don't fit that mold. Um, yep. But, but it is fascinating you're collecting this data because at least you're making an assessment and we can always change the assessment down the road. That's right. And that's what we do. We keep changing it. Like we'll look at all their previous fights, like Forrest and Dean, the head coach there, we'll look at all their previous fight statistics on striking, grappling, like how they win, what they're, and pull that into also the combine. That's a whole nother section of more just analytics of the fight metrics. That's so cool. Yeah. It's constant. It's, I mean, it's it, it, it constantly flow. There's nothing static about this, which is nothing. which is kind of neat, actually. Which yeah. is why I love my job. Exactly. So yeah. 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 
lost me for a second. Go yeah. on. In terms of um, what people, what fighters get injured from, is there a difference when you're dealing with individuals who come from a grappling background versus a striking background? 100%. I mean, it's, it's so almost textbook now in my eyes as a sports medicine clinician, like when we have our grappling athletes, I am seeing a lot of those cervical disc herniation, lumbar disc herniation, especially if they're a more wrestling grappling. Mm-hmm. If they're more jujitsu, I'm seeing more of those ligament sprains, right? Grade one, grade two, little right. ligament injuries, especially knee, ankle, elbow, things like that, if they're more jujitsu. And then our strikers are very similar to the boxing capacity. And that's really imagine. what led me in this job is that I had worked with Olympic boxers, Olympic Taekwondo, Olympic Judo, Olympic wrestling. And when I first came over to UFC, I remember them being like, are you interested in the UFC? And I was like, I know nothing about the UFC. And they literally (laughs) laughed at me and they were like, you actually do because you work with all these athletes. I mean, it's funny now because like a Kamara Usman was my athlete. Tatiana, DC, Mm. Henry Cejudo. Those were all the athletes I worked with back in the day at the Olympics. And then to see them so successful and their journeys here now in MMA is it's, it's incredible how much that carries over in the different transitions of mixed martial artists and how they become one whole athlete. I mean, that's really cool. You worked with Olympic level wrestlers and you weren't even realizing that you're working with fighters because we call them wrestling. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, uh, what's harder, wrestling or, or boxing, Heather? I think wrestling by by far has the most injury rates. Um, we see them quite frequently. I would just say I think wrestling is harder to learn from knowing what I've known from the wrestling Olympic journeys, because I also worked with Olympic boxers a lot. Mm-hmm. And I still work on the side professionally with a lot of my Olympic boxers from back in the day, because now they're all adults and making it professionally. So I'll, I'll go in on the weekends and help them out or see them privately as clients. But I would definitely say if I just want to look at the injury rates, right. I have way more injuries in wrestling, which I, I definitely believe that that would be more intense and just more injury prone. So I'm going to say that's a little bit of a harder skill to really master. Yeah. Peripherally, you'd see that, right. The, the sheer it's unfortunately it's hard to really look at the damage in boxing itself because of the aggregate on the the cognitive side and and the brain itself but yeah i would think certainly at the joint level and structurally wrestling is going to be a lot more wear and tear for sure yep yeah and i mean i just see now our guys that are getting older that were more wrestling dominant i mean they're a little bit of a mess sometimes yeah Yeah. there's a lot of surgeries going on on those yeah there is there (laughs) definitely now, without mentioning names, could you give an example of an athlete you worked with? You started sort of, I guess you could mold them based on information you're teaching them and how they progressed, you know, in terms of, you know, how they performed in a fight, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I actually have a really cool example of this. So we had a um, a light heavyweight guy come in because just literally wasn't having the luck with knockouts, really. Um, came in, did our tier one diagnostics across the board. We did realize that he was, um, an appropriate size for that weight class. Like he really could possibly go down, but he would lose a lot of muscle mass to go down to a, a lower weight class. But we just, when we started looking at all his diagnostics, he had a previous history of a shoulder injury. So a shoulder labrum, which, you know, would rare its head whenever he was in fight camp when, when his, um, training loads went up. So we first started with like a prehab rehab program that we incorporated into his warmups. Then what we realized is when we did his strength testing, he was like top 5% strongest in his weight class. But when we did his power diagnostics, he was bottom 10%. So like the man was strong, but could not take the strength and turn it into power. Slower, so yeah. we got with his um, his strength and conditioning team in Europe and literally reprogrammed all of his strength and conditioning to focus on more of that power generation. We also got with them and gave them like, hey, these are the exercises that are going to prevent that shoulder from being injured. We're going to add these in his, in his rest breaks or some of them in his warm up before he would train. Um 
nutrition wise, we wanted to keep him fueling to gain, keep the muscle mass that he was doing. And then eventually his next three fights, um, I think two were knockouts and one was submission after that. So like, yes, we have a sport that's the wild, wild west, but we also like, we are seeing now that objective data can lead, you know, like one thing we, we pride ourselves here at the UFC performance Institute. we're not technical coaches. I'm not going to give you any information that's going to make you win that fight. I'm going to keep you healthy. We're going to look objectively like the coolest thing about our sports and the coolest thing about us is we want to share that objective data. So like if as a coach, you come in, it's like, Hey, this is what we have to work with. And the coaches were like, Hey, we want him to have more power. So guess what? That's something that you can train, you know? So like we now can take objective measures and help those athletes, maybe where the coaches see the weaknesses or where the coach is like, Hey, I see this all the time. We can say, well, let's, do some objective data and see if any of this matches and can give you a reason why. Now it doesn't always have the perfect story, right? We know this in science, we know this, but you know, at least we can start to say, here's things to work on. Here's what we see. And I think that's really what we stand for and how we have evolved over these six years to realize, you know, I love when athletes are like, I don't want to be a data point, but like sometimes data can make you a better athlete or absolutely healthier or can, you know, keep more longevity of a career. So I think now athletes are a little bit more understanding and and do want to know what they can be better at, because that's how you're a better athlete. If you know where your weaknesses are. That, that uh, data is so looking and I've said for years too, Heather, that all fighters need the same qualities, but they don't possess those qualities equally. Right. And that is a perfect example Uh, some people, you know, grip strength, super strong, but the, the neural drive, the velocity at which that nervous system drives, the rate coding, it just isn't there. And, yep. and, the, and the concept of power is actually foreign to them. Snap, speed, explosion. And it, I've seen it in many athletes where they don't quite even get what you're saying. But that data point is wonderful because now you can really take the super, you know, the quality that is evident and now work on those that don't test as high or are being manifested in the cages you did. That's yep. brilliant information. Yeah. Yep. And it's nice when the, when the skill coaches are receptive to that. And I think the youngest skill coaches are the old timers, probably a little less, but I would imagine more and more are becoming open to everything you provide now. You know, I get the question from athletes all the time. Like, what do you think makes a good coach? And I'm like, first off, like, I know nothing about technical training. I, there's nothing about me that can tell you more than a coach knows in technical training. However, I can tell you the athletes that are starting to really take off in this sport are athletes that have very open-minded coaches yeah. that are like, Hey, Heather, I want to rack your brain. What do I need to do for this? Like the ones that just are taking what they know and that old school meshing it with new school. And then I'm just seeing those athletes shine way more than some of the other athletes. And it makes me really happy to see them embrace you guys because I, it's again, I'm biased in how valuable it is, but it's great to see. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, Heather, I'm not an expert in this. I'm actually a fan. I mean, I remember watching UFC back when Hoist Gracie fought chemo and was pulling chemo's hair yeah. um, and somehow beat chemo. Now, what I find interesting is a lot of aspects of mixed martial arts are, I would call it, it's trainable. Um, wrestling might be harder to learn than boxing, but it's all trainable. Now, the, the one thing that I've always found fascinating, and Tony, you can comment on this too, is that there's just some guys who can have knockout power. They just yes. have it. And there are other guys who, for whatever reason, never have it. Nope. But Tony, you and I know, Heather, we know Everything is trainable. If you can increase power output of a, of a punch, you should be able to have knockout ability. Yet, when I watch fights, it's like, okay, I know he's got or she's got knockout power. He doesn't, so he has to be more technical. Maybe he has to rely on grappling. Why? I guess the question is, how come there's only a few guys or girls who are like Anthony Rumble Johnson? He has that, that <laughs> explosive powerful. fist, whereas others, it's... I mean, Tony, isn't that trainable yet? We don't. I mean, I think it's trainable, but there's also a genetic factor in everything we look at. Right. And I mean, also the other factors that I think don't take it. I'm like, I'm thinking in my head already so many examples that I would love to like, you know, spill, but like, I know, for example, an athlete that, um, that I've heard people say, oh, he doesn't have knockout power. I also know that athlete has had surgeries on his wrist and shoulder and, like elbow and like his history is I'm like 
I don't think his wrist could tolerate knockout power. So there's a natural inhibition in that striking going on that nobody's cognizant. But he's an exceptional grappler. And that's how he's had to manifest and mold and morph as an athlete to say, here is what I got to work with. How do I become best in class? Right. And and some of these genetic things are fascinating because I stay up at night thinking about them. Right. Uh, I think everything from depth perception knowing where to strike from, um, you know, the distances are important, the capacity for double pulse, right? Fire, relax, upon impact, tighten. There's a genetic component that must exist there. Yep. Segment length, right? Um, the uh, intramuscular and intramuscular coordination that may just may be more natural. There's so many factors there. Right. And it is amazing because some guys look like they should have it and they train it and they train it and they train it. And yeah, they can't knock over a milk carton, but they could punch it 400 <laughs> times in a round, right? Yes, yes. You got to work with sense. your assets. I mean, we all know this, right? Yeah. Well, they can punch a hole in the Hoover Dam, but they can only do it once. And, <laughs> One time. Yep. And, but, you know, there's there's got to, it'll be wonderful to look at, you know, Stu Phillips looked, of course, at the, uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, um, Stu McGill, not Phillips, yep. Stu McGill at the double pulse. And the point of impact, how there's that tightening so that, you know, the stability and all that force goes into the opponent. But I think it'll be a great thing one day. Maybe we can all collaborate and try to find out what the heck does that really mean? Not I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I, as a as a fan and then Tony, because you've trained a lot of these fighters, it seems like those guys with knockout power, they rely on it so much that when they meet someone who they can't quite connect with, it's as if they're like, it could be an issue. Yeah, yes. it's like, oh my God, now what do I do? Because they're flustered. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, Deontay Wilder. He knocks out 99.99% of every human on earth, except for Tyson Fury. Exactly, right. And right. what's crazy is like, I, I work with him and oh, he's you? not that big. Like, he's tall. He's tall. Right, right. Luxury wise, he has that leaner bone mass to him and he can knock out everybody else but him. And right, I mean, right. it's crazy. Yeah. Right. I, I just think one quick point to reiterate what Heather said was so valuable because everybody's sitting back in their chair with Doritos and a beer criticizing why somebody isn't doing A, B, and C, you know, and I've worked with fighters that I know, and they've been treated by Heather, that have had 23 surgeries. No one has any idea about it. 23 surgeries in their MMA career. No one has any clue about that. And they have no clue as to what that slows down, what it inhibits. Their fourth neck surgery how well can they take a punt punch after their fourth neck surgery and the inability to train it right Heather? and 100% and it like we're not in a sport we like I laugh because you know I've had offers from other sporting leagues to mm-hmm. go join them and I literally was like it would take a millions to get me away from here because I have an athlete that walks in my door and says their arm is literally falling off. And they're like, I can still fight Heather. I work with other professional athletes and they're like, my big toe is stubbed. I'm out for hey, a month. Did you say right? soccer like, players or, or wimps? Is that what you just said? I'm just saying there's other athletes that maybe don't have the uh, mentality yeah. of a combat sport athlete. Very and good. I can value that. And just like he said, we're in a sport where they do get injured. Like the sport is like trying to test the human body at its max capacity in every aspect, which is not unlike every other sport. So of course, even their, their fight camps, like the injuries we see leading up. I mean, we've had athletes with torn ACLs, torn MCLs fight world championships and win, which what football player with a torn ACL do you see go out there and actually perform? I mean, right now, I think we have almost 10 athletes in the top 10 without ACLs. That's unheard of. That's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Like I have an athlete right now going like, of course, every physician is like, oh, well, you need surgery. Your ACL is torn. I can't break him. He is better on his involved side than his uninvolved side. So like, (laughs) look at the longevity of the careers. It's it's crazy what we get to see here. I would imagine. But hey, listen, with you guys there and your team, they they can get a couple extra years out of their career with you guys there. Because sure. I know we all do. And, and you know, I've had a lot, you know, I was with Sarah Longo a long time. And anyone who ever saw you raved, you know, and how much it helped. So it's it's really a just, it's it's so valuable. It makes me happy to see the world because this is why I'm always promoting you guys. Because 
I don't think enough people know just what you do. I really don't. Um, and how well uh, good of a job it is and how hard Duncan works and you and, and what Charles is doing now. So not only are the products incredible, but the efforts are, are unsurpassed. It's not easy. I think when you put a bunch of nerds together that love their job, yeah, like it just makes your day so much fun, right? Good and results, we yeah. genuinely like want to see the evolution of this sport and, and carry over to other sports. Like, let me be honest, like, you know, I can't tell you how many NFL players, NBA players right now that we're seeing on the side hmm. that are like the UFC fighters have it so like what you guys have developed is stuff that we don't even develop at these higher organizations that have been around. So like to continue to learn and share and put those egos aside. I mean, I always say this is there's way too many athletes in this world to see and treat. I don't want them all share combine with smart people, understand what we can do better for athletes as a whole, and then evolve the MMA world as much as we can. That's awesome. Do you think MMA will ever be an Olympic sport? I actually do. Yeah, I do. Ugh, I'm worried they'll destroy it, though. Nothing against the IOC. I, I, you know, I mean, if we're going to put 16 ounce gloves on a football helmet, and yeah, that yeah. is that would be the biggest limitation. Is it yeah. would they would I would say destroy it, but change it. Yes, they would put a lot of rules and regulations. Yeah, sure. yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the IOC is notorious for that. Um, I guess. Technically, you don't need an Olympics. It's not like track and field where no one pays attention until it's every four years. Right, right. Right. You know, I mean, the UFC is such a big organization, I think. Uh, but it would be interesting. I mean, you know, once you once you get a gold medal, it's just one of those things like, wow, you got a gold medal. It sort of supersedes everything, I guess. Maybe. I don't but know. But I think it so I think it supersedes everywhere else in this world, but here in the US. Like, <laughs> I mean, correct. I remember Working with a gold medal, I remember one of my gold medalists, I, one or two of them literally saying to me, like, I got, I won my gold medal and then I went to go buy a house and they're like, well, you have no credit. You, you've never worked a day in your life. No way. And I was Ain't like, that America. Gold medalist. you know, he's going to do everything to like <laughs> right, right. be able to afford the house. The man has devoted 18 years of his life for, let's be real. You get a gold medal, it's $25,000. That's what the, that's wow. what they pay them. 25,000. Now the, NGBs pay them more, but mm -hmm. like the Olympic U.S. Olympic Committee gives them twenty five thousand for a gold medal. Wow! I wasn't Take taxes out of that; they're probably walking home with fourteen thousand, and they exactly. just did twenty years of their whole life devoted to that sport. And we're like, "See you later, good job." Yeah. So they essentially they didn't make a dollar an hour; they paid three dollars an hour <laughs> to get that gold medal. To get that gold medal, twenty five yeah. grand. Yeah, it's it's like a graduate student stipend. Yeah. <laughs> Here's I mean, I'm not going to say I'm still paying my student loans. So. Now, you worked at the on, Olympic Jody. Training Center. I have a question about what were your favorite sports to work with? I'm sure the personality is a lot different when you're dealing with, you know, high level athletes. Uh, so who did you like working with at the Olympic Training Center? I mean, I think the banter between my wrestlers and myself were definitely <laughs> my favorite. Really? We wrestlers? Would get it to back and forth. Um, I would say... I would figure skating was one of those that shocked mm. me that I really? like became mesmerized when I went, like they assigned me to the figure skaters right before the um, Sochi Olympics. And I was like, wow, I have a new like praise and honor. But I mean, even to the, I was the youth winter Olympic director and I had to cover curling and never what? in a million years that I think as a medical person, I was like, yeah, curling. I enjoyed it. I understood That's their great. injuries. I understood what they had to do. Did you so say like, their injuries? Yeah. So you know what's crazy? In curling, they have one shoe that has a slider on it and one that has a break. So the entire time they're going, they're pretty much on a single leg stance. And then oh they God. just tap their brake side to slow down when they're getting near what right. they're trying. Which like holding a single and their their bouts are like an hour or so. So single leg stance for an hour or something and tell me, I don't, why you might oh, have it's that long. Wow. Yeah. So it's like things like that, that you never mm. would think of. So like, if I want to say my favorite sport to work with, man, I just, they were, I worked with 52 sports working for the Olympics. And wow. Is that many? That's mm -hmm. amazing. Did you ever and work I, with uh, synchronized swimming? I did. <laughs> I had to cover them at the London Olympics. I had to cover modern pentathlon. I had to be at wrestling, boxing, swimming, gymnastics. Okay. We all make fun of synchronized swimming, but it it must be hard as hell. It's got to it be hard as hell. <laughs> but how do you have a 
sport that they wear gel in their hair <laughs> or gelatin and then they go do all this crazy. I mean, sports are crazy. And I mean, the Olympics gives you a taste of everything because like in that Olympic world, Pan Ams, Para Pan Ams, Olympic, para, mm -hmm. uh, Paralympic. I mean, you see sports that you would have never realized. And I got to work with all of them, which was such an honor. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel so fortunate to be able to see how every sport has its unique characteristics. And I think that really carried over well to MMA because each so. MMA artist has very unique individual characteristics. Right. So I can really relate to that, I think, pretty well. And it's so multidisciplinary, too. And you knowing just the, the mechanics, the associated injuries of every different sport, really, I, it probably gives you a global insight. It's very valuable in MMA, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one just thing I quick, here's a good, here a bit of good news, and this is going to be great for your future. Am I right in them saying, because I read some data, by around 2030, other than football slash soccer, MMA is projected to be the second biggest sport in the world, worldwide. It is. It is. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah. even, I think when I was in the Olympic, like, world, I didn't really know any much, much about MMA. And I can say, like, anytime I go out and people ask me what I do, if I say anything about UFC, everybody's talking about it. Yeah. Oh, I watched this. Yeah. I mean, I think it helps that we don't have an off season and there's 44 yeah, events point. out of the year. Yep. So like you can be on a Saturday, what am I going to do? There's usually some kind of MMA or some kind of promotion on. So I definitely think it's a, it's a, on an upward slope. And I think it's exceptionally growing. Like I'm excited to see 10 years from now where this sport is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can only see soccer slash football paralleling it because that has a 50 year history of the world's largest sport. But I and what you you all are doing so well is, I mean, you know, the the international uh, competitions, the different venues. And look, it can't hurt to get a champion from a new country every other year and oh bring in a whole new pool of fans and right and. I mean, I know, UFC um, knows what they're doing. There's a reason oh, they do. we went yes. to China, we had Ray Lee. We just had Alexa Grasa, Brandon Moreno. Like, yes. Mexico's a melting pot. Like, whoever's upstairs making decisions, they make some good decisions. They're good. They're shocked that. with that, yep. Um, but they definitely have, you know, the, the avenue to grow globally. And I think what makes it so unique is on one fight card, you can have an athlete from almost every region exactly. globally around the world. Which, exactly. you know, otherwise normal other sports, it's, this team, you know, maybe Team USA versus England. You know what I mean? It's right. not mm -hmm. England, USA, China, everybody on the map in one event. Yeah, and that's what I love about it because people in America could completely be rooting from somebody from Dagestan against an American. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yes. it makes the sport so exciting for that reason, you know? That is true. Yeah. And it, and it does make sense that the UFCPI will open in Mexico because – as you know, Tony, the tradition of Mexican boxers has been oh, amazing. I mean, some of the best fighters come out of Mexico, and it would yep. it would seem natural that some of them would gravitate to MMA. I think, although, like in the United States, we have college wrestling as a feeder system. In mm -hmm. Mexico, they don't really. I assume they don't have that. They don't, and that's why they're building a PI there because there's that. Uh, like like we said, a lot of if you look at our top athletes, they're very well diverse in all the mixed martial arts. But what does seem to play lead is when someone's a very good grappler, you know, that, that right. definitely adds to that benefit. And because China, because, you know, Mexico doesn't have those wrestling programs and this, that's a component that we, we kind of feel is missing. Mm -hmm. And that's why we hope by having that academy with wrestling coaches and things and bringing in other people that will help to kind of build on that grappling foundation. Yeah, I foresee that in a positive nature exploding. The interest yeah. exploding and changing the dynamics of, of certainly well within the region of the academy, the whole dynamics of youth sports there. I think it'll have that great of an influence. Yeah, yeah. I do too. Now, <clears throat> we're a little bit out of time, so I want to be respectful of your time because I know you got to get back to work. <laughs> Tell us, uh, are there any new things coming up? Is there any new data that we can all collaborate on? Because we've published already a couple papers with you guys. So yeah. Um, so what's new coming up so with the UFCPI? What's new? There's actually some cool stuff that's coming out. Our, we are finally, I think, staffed appropriately. So we can sit back and start to look at and do a little bit more research engagement. So I know Nutrition is doing a study on Sweet Sweat to figure out all the foundations of that, which is a really interesting study when it mm -hmm. comes out. 
Um, I know our sports medicine team is working with a company called ProtoCool to actually cool the carotid arteries that helps with concussion management, helps with uh, recovery. We have some sensory technology where like to downregulate symptoms that we're going to start to do research on. And then the coolest thing for my team is my team will now be included on event injury maintenance, which is something that we've never done. So we'll be now backstage helping if an athlete gets injured, reviewing what the injury is, explaining what their return to play protocols look like, publishing return to play protocols out there for concussions, working with nutrition and everything. So actually like there's a lot of really cool stuff that, you know, in six and a half years, we've been striving to come full circle and be a part of these athletes journeys from getting into the octagon and then after even the octagon. And we're finally laying a lot of stones to get there. So fantastic. And when you finally get some free time, which is never, we'll all research together and find out what the hell does causes power in a striking punch. I love this. (laughs) We're going to figure that out, Heather. I'm telling you, we're going to figure it out one day. I like this. If you figure that out, you'll be a very rich man. Yeah. Well, that's the second reason why. Yes. Count me in on this one. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, Dr. Heather Linden, uh, you know, I want to thank you for coming on the Sports Science Dudes. This has been a great conversation. Um, If you're ever in South Florida, you got to let us know. For sure. I love Florida. So I definitely, my dad lives in Jacksonville. So I do get there quite a bit, but I have to make it down South a little bit more. So I would love (laughs) to definitely meet up with you all when I'm there. You must. and you've convinced me that Vegas isn't as bad as as I thought it was. I haven't been there probably in 10 years because I got sick of the place, to be honest. Your so, next trip will be your tour guide and no okay. normal things in Vegas. Yes, and if nothing else, Joe, you got to go see the PI. Yes. It's beautiful. If nothing yes. else, go visit them there because it's a, it's really a, an inspiring place to visit. And they did a wonderful job with the place. It's Thank great. You. Well, next time the NSCA has a conference out there, Tony, we'll go out there. Okay. And, uh, I want to visit. All right, that's a deal. We'll do that. Sounds good. Um, So thanks. uh, Thanks, Heather. Appreciate your time. Thank you. uh, Hopefully, we'll catch you in South Florida. Sounds great, guys. See you soon. Thank you again. Bye Bye now.